the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. Like every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought (laughs) differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? So there's so much to parenting these days and unfortunately it's the one really big important job in life where a lot like marriage you don't get a handbook there's no manual there's no advanced pre-qualifications you just kind of dive in and you go and if you came fortunately from a good strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you you can kind of model your parenting skills after them and if you didn't well you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite right but in the end some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That coincidentally is the title of the new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the, the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment when we talk about this. I think, you know, at, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially... Um you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, you have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects, there are benefits, there are, I, mean, I, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the, the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that, that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we, we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up. But we don't often stop to really ask ourselves, what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what, what would I like to change about them? And, you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question. 
so we, we come out of our homes with an, an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles, and each one of these that Mylon just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, and- well, for example, I was the avoider parent. And so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, and we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connection. We were never asked about feelings as, as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way. And I think most avoider parents, male or female, are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or... Um, you know, upset. I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, so, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylon, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? <laughs> well, I like your optimistic start. <laughs> did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't because... As a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is is that uh, pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy. And they they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately... Uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep every, you know, just, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylon, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers and they can, the kids can get by with stuff and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based and they like to have everybody in a a happy place. And so they really can't offer um, what you said earlier in your introduction. Uh, Like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept and people do need a good balance of tough and tender or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner. You know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation? And, you know, how do you like to decorate the house? And where do you want to live? And how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally. But I would suspect there are few that would sit down in advance of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style, you know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are, are 
polar opposites. And as you've suggested by the title of the book and in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are have, you know, high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know a positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect and Mylon was too free-spirited and you know unable to set those boundaries but um, you know the vacillator parent is the third one and you know their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior and what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very very sensitive to rejection and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels... A sense of um, present, but the, but the parent exactly, is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro. That some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for, and we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they, they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kid. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, that, that can be very problematic, especially as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love our kids the five love styles of parenting and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessarily at all. Hey, as we're talking about these styles, 
styles here. I, I liked what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoiders less you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these lifestyles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And, and, and their world is either good or bad. Yeah. It's just all good or all bad. And then that lifestyle that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility 
for that lack of training in my own home. And I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and, and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting styles, seeing the benefits, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they, they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds, and, and they're fussier, and, and yet if they're put into the same plan as, as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. Needs to be a lot of flexibility then because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed as unique individuals have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true. And, you know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that. But in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known. And, you know, we ask a question in our seminars. How many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were? And, again, there's, a, there's a, just a minority of people who raise their hands. And so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved. And um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, then we're, we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a Even book. awareness. And awareness, that's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider. And my last, the fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just at a higher level. And I would suspect, too, here in the end, it, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, 
but also the unique individual needs of your kids. And obviously that number in, in time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, but that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time to get better. Um, there's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it, it will be adequate. Uh, we're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up. You know, the, I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also, more information on both the ministry of Mylan and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It might have been the loss of a parent while you were very young. Maybe you have a dim memory of an event that you've struggled to keep hidden in a dark corner of your mind for all of your adult life. You struggle with lack of motivation at times, fear, bouts of depression. Maybe there are times that anger boils up to the surface to the point that you feel you can barely control the rage. You have a suspicion about what drives these moments of emotion and anger and frustration and fear, and yet you don't know what to do about it. You're terrified of the thought of sharing it for Perhaps someone else will think you're either lying or have lost your mind. And at times you feel as if every aspect of your life is gripped with fear and you are totally paralyzed. From a professional standpoint, you might be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, a phrase we hear quite often, and yet what does it exactly mean? How are people diagnosed with it? But most importantly, how do you escape from it? How do you deal with the reality of your past and break free from that to allow you to move on to finding peace and liberty in your life for perhaps the very first time? Joining me today in the studio, two authors. The book is called Love Letters from the Edge, Meditations for Those Struggling with Brokenness, Trauma, and the Pain of Life. With us is returning once again, Shelley Beach, multiple award-winning co-author, and she's written, by the way, more than 15 books, and she's co-founder of the PTSDperspectives.org, providing consultation services on post-traumatic stress disorder in medical, mental health, educational, criminal justice, professional, and faith-based settings across the nation. Also joining her, a name that is certainly very well known to listeners of this program going back many, many years. In fact, you hear her name mentioned at the end of every program because we have to blame somebody. <laughs> Our producer, Wanda Sanchez. 
Wanda, in addition to being a book author, is the executive producer of this program and the executive publicist at WLS Communications, a public relations and media consulting communications firm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She also is the co-founder of PTSDperspectives.org. And ladies, welcome to the both of you. Thank, Thank you, you so Craig. much. Wanda, we're turning the tables on you. Yeah, Normally, really, how scary. you're bringing the guests in and you're worried about yep. what the guests are going to do and coming back and saying, so how did it go? Yep. And today you get to be in the hot seat. I am in the... I'm the victim today. <laughs> <laughs> and Shelley, of course, has been a, a dear friend for many years and a frequent guest on this program as well with many of the books that you have written. And it's great to have both of you join us to talk about a topic that, quite frankly, impacts the lives of more people than I guess most of us really realize, yes. largely because many of the people that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, or the aftermath, I guess we'll call it, of bad things that happen in life, um, don't quite understand what it is. They don't know how to articulate it. They just know that they're not happy, they're frustrated, they're fearful, and it can run the gambit of impacting everything from your ability to go to work every day to your ability to carry on healthy relationships to even your ability to have a relationship with God. Yes. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit first, Wanda, about the purpose behind the book, the motivation. How did this come into being? Well, um, we, Shelly and I had um, become friends um, in a, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, but it's, Lifeline was like the reason we be, we met. I, I booked her for Lifeline for um, a series of interviews about caregiving. And during this time, we didn't really speak on the phone very much. Um, we did email. I tell her what time the next segment's going to be on. Anyway, through this little bit of communication, we became friends. And um, she was actually the one that ended up telling me that she thought she believed I had PTSD and that I perhaps needed to get some help. So after I did get, I'm skipping over a lot, but after I did get treatment, um, we were traveling and speaking. Um, about trauma, about PTSD, and about um, my, you know, the treatment that I went through, and not much, not so much about the treatment, but about the results of the treatment. Um, and we were everywhere we went, everywhere we went, people were asking us, "Please write a book. Please write a book. Please, we need we need to read what you have to say." You know, we would read it, and um, and so listening to all those voices, we we kind of knew we, we wanted to do that. Um, but we also knew that um, we wanted to try and be very, very careful um, because it could be, you know, a book that that could um, probably evoke or provoke some feelings you don't want to have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we knew we were going to have to kind of find a balance there. There's that balance between addressing the issue and not creating a trigger point. Exactly. Uh, right. And I guess even for, for the potential reader to whom you were trying to give a sense of hope and reassurance. Right. And, and, and for a lot of people. The trauma of discovering that there's trauma. Right. And maybe you can speak to that because there's that sense sometimes that we've gone through an experience that may be 10, 20, 30 years ago. Right. That we've spent such a lifetime trying to push down, ignore. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have taken blame for it. It might be a case of, of abuse or abandonment, variety of issues that 
happened maybe at childhood. Right. And the child can't process, can't understand, can't reason. Well, daddy hits not because he hates me, but daddy hits because he has a drinking problem. And he has a drinking problem because his father had a drinking problem. Right. And therefore, right. that's all he knows because the sins of the parents are visited upon the next generation. Right. A five-year-old can't understand that. Yes. So a five-year-old does what a five-year-old knows to do. And that either is takes all the blame on, I must have been a bad boy or a bad mm-hmm. girl, or so stuffs it down. Mm-hmm that this unresolved issue and conflict and pain never gets addressed and yet manages to bubble its way to the surface in a lot of other ways. Right. Well, there, there's trauma in everybody's life, and there's there's little T trauma, you, you know, which are, you know, the painful things that happen, and then there's the big T trauma that actually disrupts the way the brain works. And trauma with a capital T is any event that overwhelms your brain's ability to function and work and it and it actually causes that fight or flight response and during that type of event uh, there's a chemical wash that comes over the brain and the dual brain function of the right and left hemispheres of the brain with the right side doing one one role and the left side doing another the right side is primarily creative and language and pictures and images and sights and sounds and scents and emotions and then the left side of the brain doing linear function of putting things in time sequence and the more logical those two functions which are always going on simultaneously they get broken apart during a a big t trauma and you freeze and um so the linear, yeah, side, the linear shut side shuts down, and so what we're left with with is a half-processed experience, and so um, what we end up going through life with is coping mechanisms of how to deal with this mess that's in our brain because we end up with um, with, with having all these triggers that cause this to replay over and over again, and unfortunately, the coping mechanisms are the behaviors that are commonly. You know, addictions or hoarding or or um, avoidance or um, all kinds of acting out things that we feel so guilty about all of our lives. And we may have had from the time that we were small or obsessive compulsive disorder or all kinds of things. And sometimes we don't know why they're there. For instance, you may have had a medical experience when you were two or three years old that caused you to have this this terrible traumatic medical response because you know, PTSD is not just linked to abuse. It can be linked to medical experiences. It can be linked to being in a car accident. It can be linked to something just, just that you saw or even experienced in the womb, believe it or not. So um, there are people who don't even recognize what's causing them to have certain patterns of behavior. And um, I had just been doing some investigation about PTSD because of things that were happening in my family to some of my family members and myself. I'd been... Um, sexually assaulted multiple, multiple times, plus I'd had other experiences that were traumatic, and I was trying to figure out whether anybody could, um, you know, find help. (laughs) And um, so that's why when I met Wanda, I had some recommendations for her regarding a place where she could go and not get counseling and not just go and talk about it, but go get um, treatment that would actually help address the PTSD itself. So, Is it important to make that connection to reconnect those dots because there is as you say a disconnect that becomes part of the coping mechanism and sometimes enough time passes that even the acknowledgement as to what is actually behind the trigger yes. there might be other things that trigger mm-hmm. but what's behind the triggers the original, it's important to yeah. make the beginning, that connection the middle, to and find end healing? of the story yeah. yes 
Yes. Well, well, like for me, uh, there was a gun put to my head, and um, one of one of, in one of my assaults, there was a gun put to my head, and the man told me he was going to blow my head off and and kill me um, if I didn't do what he told me to do, and I fought him. And so all during that time, I was waiting for the gun to go off and my brain to be blown off, I, my head to be blown off or whatever. So um, I I have a, a, a trigger response to loud noises. Um, a, a, a quite, a startle quite, response. Yeah, a startle response. But until I understood where that came from, um, the startle response was much stronger than it is now. And it could, it could send me into um, a... Dissociation, yeah, into dissociation, yeah. yeah. Where I would, I would startle, and then I would just kind of drift away, and um, just kind of be in a dazed state of mind. That doesn't happen now. I'll, I'll startle, but I, I don't go away um, because I know what it is. I know what it's linked to, and I've had some trauma treatment. So, and so when you process a trauma, when you finally start to tell the truth mm-hmm. about the story, um, because see. Um, just the, what what you have in your head, the, the memory or whatever's starting to come up for you, if it's not, if you don't have it all yet, you know, of, of why or that's very important because tra- what trauma also does because it shuts down one side and this side's going crazy, it just talks mess to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. so lies, it, lies, it lies down to you. It never talks like you're fabulously wonderful. No, it's you know you're stupid and you're ugly or whatever. It just picks up this. I don't even know how to how to explain that. You are you are ruined. You you're are ruined. you are trash. You are all these ter- so terrible when things. You start to tell the truth to yourself about really what happened. You know that that this bad thing happened, but the bad thing isn't you, mm. right? You know the bad thing is not you. It's a bad thing, but that bad thing is not you. And you get to actually that's the truth. So when mm-hmm. you start to process, but you've never heard that. Because it's always been in your head, you never said it out loud, mm-hmm. you know. So now the 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 people that were helping me learn to do this, you know, were were telling me, how, were showing me how to um, how to how to process trauma without re-triggering myself. They didn't re-traumatize me. Um, there is there are ways to process trauma that are not painful, that don't have to take a million years, um, and 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 that are successful. Let's talk about some of that when we come back after a brief timeout. With me today in studio, Shelley Beach and our producer, Wanda Sanchez. A look at love letters from the edge as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation on this edition of Lifeline. We have with us today in studio authors Shelley Beach and Wanda Sanchez. You say, I know those names. Well, you should. Um, Shelley's been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. And Wanda, of course, has been our producer for a week or two. A week 15, or two. 15, 20 years, something like that. We've been, on, we've been on the air 28 years, and I think mm-hmm. um, certainly the lion's share of the 28 years. Together, they've written a new book called Love Letters from the Edge. It's released by Kriegel Publications, available Usual Suspects, Amazon. Also through the website, ptsdperspectives.org. Wanda, just before the break, you were mentioning about the importance of truth-telling. Yes. So oftentimes, in a traumatic experience, if it's one, for example, we have been on the receiving end of abuse, the perpetrator will tell lies. And those lies are a way to try and avoid the truth, dealing with their own truth. Yes. Stuffing things down to never have to be accountable for their actions. And then after a while, 
we begin to understand that if, you know, the lies sometimes are a part of that coping mechanism. And we know certainly from the spiritual dynamic here, one of the disconnects that I think we need to very importantly reconnect for somebody that is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder is the fact that the originator of these lies is very Satan himself. That's absolutely right. And that's the the subtle thing is that while you're dealing with the big parts of the trauma, the accident or the, the sexual abuse, whatever, the, the lies that have been laid every day, really, since that trauma, you know, they kind of get away if you're not looking for that. Right. If you don't know that telling the truth is honestly going to be a way to find freedom. That's why so many programs don't don't really work. I mean, you know, um, they're dealing with the wrong things. We watch. Uh, have you ever seen Hoarders or mm-hmm. Celebrity Rehab or any of those things we've seen on TV where they clean you up, they take away the drugs, they clean get clean off alcohol, they they clean the house of the hoarder, they and then they go away. And this person who's left with no drugs, no alcohol, and a clean house, that's like. It's a worse. death sentence. They become worse. Yeah, of course. They they didn't deal with the trauma. Well, they didn't deal with what brought them there. So they're going to do it again. You know, it's good. They're going to end up right back there again. But had they processed the trauma of the of the person, and that doesn't mean talk about it. It means getting these two parts of the brain to work. So stopping this cycle absolutely requires going back to what you were saying earlier, Shelley, and that is the the cognitive disconnect that happens as the coping mechanism at whatever yes. point the trauma is made. And I think it's right. important to point out this is not just for children. Right. This happens for adults as well. Mm-hmm. It is the chemical reaction. It is the neurological reaction. Yes. It is the fallen nature sin reaction, then when we try to deal with the trauma apart with putting in perspective of God. There's also that huge faith component because you are not, when you are experiencing, when you've experienced this big T trauma, especially if it's come through through sexual abuse or or if it's come through um, domestic violence or in your childhood having witnessed certain kinds of things or experienced them, you're not going to feel like the truth is true for you. Um, as Wanda put it, she was the asterisk in the Bible. Mm. All those things were true for everybody else, but they weren't true for her. Because that's the way your emotions are when when you feel, um, when, when you've experienced certain kinds of trauma. So you have to come to the point where you're willing to say, um, I'm going to, um, well, at one point I said to her, she was like, you know, I, I don't have any faith. I don't, I don't have any hope. And I said, well, I got a bucket. I'm going to carry it for you. And when you're ready to carry it for somebody else, you know, you, you get the bucket back. Um, and that's the way it is sometimes with, with PTSD and trauma is that you, you can't depend on your feelings and your emotions. And I would imagine, too, as much as I brought the God component into this conversation, that that can also be a double-edged sword in that you look at the imagery that we see through the church, throughout Scripture, Absolutely. our Heavenly Father, God the Father, yes. and yet what do you do if a child, for example, comes home to a father every night who is abusive, who is an alcoholic, who you see slapping right. your mother around, yep. drinking, beating the kids up, yep. maybe engaged mm-hmm. in sexual abuse within the family, all of a sudden now your ability to relate to a loving, kind exactly grace-filled heavenly father versus the mess of this guy. That's right. 
All and of I, a sudden now, that, that picture is a difficult one to relate to worked. because the loving father, you've got to yes. be kidding me. Right. I think the church needs to be speaking honestly and openly on these issues. We need to be talking about all mental health issues, honestly, from the top down. I'm so glad what uh, Rick and Kay Warren are doing at Saddleback and other churches following suit in talking about a mental illness. It's not a it's not a taboo subject, but often it's not discussed in in churches. To say that um, th- this is something that um, almost ten percent of people who are sitting in our pews and in our congregations are struggling with with trauma and PTSD. If you do the math on, I don't know what size church people may be going to, but in my church, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And and they're struggling even with coming through the door and knowing where they can sit and feel safe. So, so we need to confront these issues. We need to talk about them honestly and talk about the fact that you may have had that experience or are having that experience in your home. It hurts, but that's a lie and a deception. That's not, that's not who God is. And that... God didn't perpetrate this abuse upon you either. Um, well, and not only is that not who God is, but as you mentioned a moment ago, Wanda, that's not who you are either. No, right. no, no, no. We, we tend to sometimes yes. in in this failed methodology of, of creating a coping mechanism to survive, we accept blame and take on blame and, and reassign blame in so many ways that is so far disconnected from reality. reality. Yes. And yet in the moment, well, that's all you know to do. Yes. Right. Oh, and, yeah. we, and we wanted this book to be kind of a safe place for not, ju- not just women, but pr- it's probably primarily women because we tend to speak mostly in those settings and often in prison for, for women to ask God tough questions. Where were you when I was being thrown down the basement stairs? Where were you when I lost my, when I lost my child? Where were you when we all ask those questions? Sometimes we're afraid to say them out loud because we think that we insult God, but we don't. Um, and the book doesn't provide easy, glib answers. What it does is it's like every, every devotional is a letter from a woman who's, or a person who's heartbroken in some circumstance to God, just pouring out her heart. It's like a, a prayer to God. And then the second half of each devotion is just a love letter back from God. Most of it's just um, straight scripture, just paraphrased a little bit. And they're not, they're not like I said, glib answers. They're um, just expressing the character of God and his love for us. In this truth-telling process, we'll call it, is it important to allow yourself to admit how you're feeling. And I ask that question because I would imagine a lot of people that have gone through post-traumatic stress disorder have spent such a long time trying to stuff it down, push it away, disconnect from the pain of it all, that not only is there a lot of deflection and denial going on, but even to admit, I'm angry at God. Oh, yes. Even I mean, to that's admit, what, yes. you know what, oh, yeah. I go to church every day and I smile and I put on mm-hmm. a cheery face. But that's mm-hmm. not how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, for instance, there, there's there are statistics that demonstrate the the trauma that is associated with the loss of children before birth, so, so for miscarriage and those kinds of things. Yet that's that's often diminished in our culture, and it's just like, well, you can try again, or oh, you already have two you children have at two. home, or whatever. But even in, in a situation like, we need to have the opportunity for people to grieve, for us to inventory our losses. Sometimes when somebody has extreme abusive experiences you will grow up and achieve adulthood 
having missed out on many things. And you need to be able to look back and grieve and say, honestly, this is what I have lost. And to be able to to be in that place and, and speak honestly with God and even with other people about... Because, you know, God can take it. He knows already, you know. And so uh, that was always where I, I, I was. I was I wouldn't talk to anyone because I was ashamed of the way I, was, I felt. Because I felt deeply disappointed in God. And, but on the other hand, I also have a, a very deep faith. And that's like my, the most important thing in my life, you know. So... It was a very confusing time and place for me. Um, it's funny how we'll get shut down by shame. Mm-hmm. And yet the first example we see of that is the parents, so to speak, of yeah. humankind. Yep. Good old Adam and Eve. And they tried to hide their <laughs> yeah. shame. Yep. And yet God fully knew. Yep. God mm-hmm. knew. Let's pause on that part. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Shelley Beach and Wanda Sanchez in studio. Love letters from the edge as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 